contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey, welcome back to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I wanted to sort of catch you up on some things. Do a Brandt's Rants. Haven't done one of these for a while. Maybe a little bit instructional, kind of a football 101 on rookie contracts to start it out. And then some thoughts on the NFL rules changes, what's going on there with the May meetings. Thoughts on Mark Cuban's comments about tanking and maybe even a thought on Kaepernick. Kind of the topic, not only last season, but in the offseason as well. So just uh, Brant's rants here on the Business of Sports podcast for this week in May. One thing I wanted to talk about is rookie contracts. Boy, it's a sea change from when I did rookie contracts as a negotiator for the Packers. And then in many years before that, as an agent, I probably have negotiated, I don't know, 100, 120 rookie contracts over my career. And these were back in the day when you could negotiate, where agents could make a difference in terms of money where typically agents would wait until right around training camp to get the deals done. I banged my head against the wall every May and June when I was with the Packers trying to get guys to sign up, you know. But agents just want to wait. They don't want to look bad. The deal could come in early. They could be the first in the round. It wouldn't look good when deals came in around them. So most teams just kind of wait. They call training camp. They call the agents, get the deals done. Then when it's all filled in and you just plug in a number. But that was rookie contracts back in the day. Since 2011, a sea change. The CBA, as we all know by now, took a haircut to rookie compensation, really took the money down for first-rounders, really made all draft picks sign four-year deals, so there's no chance of getting to free agency before that with a restricted free agent if you're a drafted player. It also didn't allow any renegotiation until three years in the league. But what it did to the negotiation part of it was say, hey, here's the number, each pick has an assigned value, and that value is negotiated. It's Basically, you can get the 100%, which every team does. That's the bonus. That's the guarantee. That's the total value over four years. Easy peasy. As soon as you're drafted, you know what that deal is. So the obvious question it begs is, what do you negotiate? Well, that's where you get into these fine print deals. It's really the backside. We talk about the contract. What most people focus on is how much. But there are little things, and let's talk about those. And this is kind of a an instructional part of the Business of Sports podcast. First, when you get the bonus, people think, a lot of times people think you just get it there. You get a $5 million bonus, $10 million bonus. These top picks are getting $20 million bonuses. Well, you don't get it at once. I mean, some people think, oh, you get it. No, you don't get it. You get a deferral. You know, and the biggest example of deferral in the news in the past couple of years, remember Aaron Hernandez, and it's a tragic saga, but Aaron Hernandez got a major deferral in his 2012 signing bonus, $12 million. That's another story why the Patriots would do that after two years in the league when you could still do that. But he had a last installment due, $3.25 million, I believe in 2015, maybe even fourteen from that 2012 deal, and the Patriots haven't paid. They cut them, uh, and typically that signing bonus deferral is due and earned for basically signing your contract. The Patriots really don't have a lot of rights to withhold that bonus, but they have. And why? Because they got the money. Instead of Aaron Hernandez, or his estate in this case, having the money, his estate is chasing that money. The NFLPA is rightly representing his estate in that because they've got to protect the rights of players 
teams can't just withhold bonuses like the Patriots are doing. So we have that issue. And that's something we have to look at here because deferrals are what teams hold on to in order to be able to, you know, basically have the rights to have your money. You screw up down the road, teams got the money. That's why deferrals are so important to teams. Now, in my experiences, I would often defer, you know, give the agent a choice. Like if you want a big deferral, I'll give you a little bigger bonus. If you want it all now, you're going to get a smaller bonus. And again, depending on the level of contract, it would vary. But I would say it's about 50-50. About half the time, teams, uh, I'm sorry, agents would want the smaller bonus, but now, usually agents are players that need the money now, half the time they take the bigger bonus with deferrals. Here's what happens in rookie contracts. You get these disputes like we had with Joey Boza last year. Boza argued the third pick in the draft, which he was in past years, had gotten all their money in the first year, in that case, 2016. The Chargers saying, hey, no, we defer all our contracts, including Phillip Rivers. So they were saying, no, we're going to put a big chunk into 2017. It went on into training camp. People are calling Boza prima donna. How dare you hold out with the rookie system that it is? But again, that's something to argue about. And finally, the Chargers moved up some money, I think, earlier into 2017, from March to January, maybe, and got the deal done. And of course, Boza had a good year. It wasn't an issue. Sometimes people act like these holdouts are going to ruin these rookies for two weeks of practices. Come on. So the furls are in these contracts. You never get these big bonuses right away. So you negotiate that. That's a negotiable item. So that's one area of these rookie contracts people don't see. Another one is offset. We've heard about this before. It's a way teams protect themselves. If a player with guaranteed money is released, gets signed with a new team, the new team pays them something, that new team's pay goes against the obligation of the old team. We've seen that before. It's another way where these teams control their risk, and ultimately all these contracts are about risk. Pretty much everyone imposes offset, including the number one pick in the draft, Miles Garrett. He's got offset in his contract. Interestingly, Fournette, the fourth pick with the Jaguars, does not have offset. I would suspect the Rams are not going to impose offset as well because they've always allowed it. So there are some outlier teams that don't impose the offset, but pretty much everyone else says, yeah, we're doing that. Another thing that teams do is they have these void languages in there. We've known about future guarantees being voided, which means erased, invalidated, made null, if the player gets in trouble, uh, if the player is suspended, so a suspension can void future guarantees. We saw that with the Eagles' Lane Johnson. A steroid suspension has something like $25 million of future guarantees out the window. Now, of course, he can still make the money, but it's not guaranteed anymore. Well, now teams are getting even tougher with that. They're saying fines. If you have a fine, it can void future suspensions. Fines can be for anything like mismeeting, mispractice. Think about a player on the way to practice, gets a flat tire, is 10 minutes late, gets a missed or late to practice fine, which could void millions, even tens of millions of future guarantees. Think about that. But that's in these language. That's what agents have to fight against. And the last thing to talk about is split contracts. Split means, you know, people think they everyone gets minimum. Well, if you're hurt, if you're on IR, if you're on PUP, if you're on some kind of injured list, no, you can get a split. In the contract, it's negotiated. You don't get minimum. You get a split deal. Split is far below the minimum. If the minimum now is like 465, the split, I think, is, I don't know, low 300s, maybe 280, something like that. 
So these split deals are imposed. Now, first and second rounders go get them. Looks like third rounders are getting them for year one, fourth rounders for year one and two, and you get on later down, years one, two, and three are all split, meaning these players get hurt. They don't make minimum. They make a lot less. Why does this happen? Because they can, because teams continue to impose their will in these different ways. So again, agents having trouble making fees, downward pressure on the margins, 3% is the max agents can take. A lot of these big companies even are doing rookie contracts for 1%. And how they even earn their 1%, it's for things like this. It's pushing back on voids, pushing back on offset, pushing back on bonus payouts, pushing back on splits. Again, the money's all set, so we have a new way of doing rookie contracts. It's important for people to know what can be negotiated. I just went over some areas that can, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the team's going to say, which I said, my 10 years in the Packers said all the time, well, that's the way we do our contracts. And agents just have to bang their head against the wall. Players have to take what they can get and hope they get the leverage at some point down the road, which some do in free agency but it seems like a smaller and smaller group. Players getting squeezed on the way in, players getting squeezed on the way out of the league. There is that sweet spot for players in free agency, but again, it's a small group every year. So that's a little primer on rookie contracts, what can and what can't be negotiated. The big issue, of course, money can't be negotiated, really. The the smaller issues, which could be bigger issues, there is some negotiation. Another thought, in the news this week, Tom Brady hid concussions according to his wife and we assume his closest confidant, Giselle Bunchen. She said on CBS Morning News that Tom Brady hid concussions, said it nonchalantly. NFL executives sitting in their offices that morning had to spit out their coffee. There has been so much emphasis on player safety, on self-reporting, on players doing the right thing, on the game becoming safer, on players taking note not playing through, not in that playthrough mentality. The NFL getting past the culture depicted in concussion, in league of denial. And to be to give credit where credit is due, the NFL has been on a positive trajectory since the 2009 congressional hearings, where they were called on the carpet, even compared to the tobacco industry, about their lax attitude of concussion. So give credit to the NFL. But these things set them back. Little things like the Case Keenum fiasco a couple years ago where he was clearly compromised, not taken out of the game. Like Cam Newton last year, clearly compromised, not even checked on the sideline at the opener of last year against Denver. But now Tom Brady and no word from Brady. There's been a sort of a mealy mouth statement from the agent that the NFL, of course, went into hyperdrive and issued a statement right away. There's no evidence of that. But could he have hit concussions? Sure. Drew Brees made a comment similar to that. Of course, you know, encounter that. Ben Rothsberger said he did self-report and he's proud of it. Here's the thing. We talk about hiding concussions. It is an injury you can hide. It's not like an arm, an elbow, a knee, an ankle where you're limp- limping around or having an arm hanging out. So you can and players do. You really associate it more with players on the bubble, marginal, down the line, rank and file, who know if they lose their job, they may never get it back. You know, the, the situation even happened with Alex Smith a few years ago where he was top of the game. The, the team, the 49ers, was doing well. He had a concussion. He did everything right. He sat out. He self-reported. A guy named Kaepernick came in. Colin Kaepernick, a dynamic player, took the job, never gave it back. Alex Smith. 
never played it down for the 49ers again. Now he found himself in a great place with the, with the Chiefs and Andy Reid, but you see the point and players saw the point. That's not a good look for the NFL where a guy loses a job, a guy who's a starting quarterback. If it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. And I think if it's true about Tom Brady, and we don't know if it is or not, but we can expect and not be so naive that this does happen. Everyone's worried about this primal fear of being replaced, this Wally Pip syndrome. I saw it firsthand as an agent and a team executive, even with Brett Favre. He knows how he got his job. The guy in front of him got hurt and he never gave it back. That's how Tom Brady got his job. That's how Colin Kaepernick, as we just talked about, got his job in San Francisco. So it happens the culture is changing on a general level. I think we do have more self-reporting in the past. We are in a new era beyond the League of Denial concussion era, but there's a primal desire to play. It's a default setting for all athletes. Everyone listening to this knows that. Everyone listening to this with kids playing sports knows that. You want to play. It's what we want to do as athletes. But again, it's up to the adults in the room, the the management, the coaches, the doctors, the medical staff, the trainers to protect these players. And sometimes they can't protect them if the players don't report. Something that's going to go on forever, I think, in sports where players try to hide in order to play. What can we do about it? Try to make the game safer. Try to encourage more self-reporting. Maybe we have uh, in reserve roster exemptions, etc. Those are things we need to we need to focus on. And speaking of player safety, the NFL is probably going to um, reduce overtime from 15 to 10 minutes in their meetings. Uh, as I record this, they're meeting about it. It makes sense because it's got the imprimatur of player safety on it. Owners are probably going to pass it from 15 minutes to 10 minutes, five minutes less of playing time, five minutes less of injured possibilities. My point is, if that's really the issue, just scrap overtime. What's the problem? I mean, instead of Reducing from 15 to 10, reduce from 15 to zero. You don't have the issue of player safety at all. You make it more exciting end of game decisions. Coaches can separate themselves with strategic management of the end of the game. And it's okay. It's okay. We can have ties. My thought on overtime there. A final NFL thought on Kaepernick. I do think there's a lot of hyperbole out there. The word black ball is being used. Listen, blackball to me is a collusion style word where owners get together and say, let's not sign this guy, period. I think for everyone signed, every GM would say, well, this is what we wanted, not Kaepernick. But I do think obviously politics comes into play here. If you're looking at two similarly situated players, one has the stuff around him. However, we define that one doesn't. Teams like backup players that are anonymous, that are faceless, that are much more football guys then they'll tolerate for star players. That's just the nature of the game. I've seen it a long time firsthand. And I think that's happening with Kaepernick to some extent. I call it attention discrimination. It's happened with whoever, Michael Sam, Tim Tebow, Ray Rice, where there's other stuff, all different circumstances, that's preventing them from being signed as compared to similarly situated players with no quote-unquote stuff. Kaepernick, listen, here's the thing. The NFL has the longest offseason of all of sports. We know that. We still got eight weeks left in this offseason. So I think Kaepernick will be signed. He doesn't need 32 teams to like him. He just needs one. And I think there will be that one. And then some of this talk, this pendulum of, of emotional discussion about Kaepernick will be in our rearview mirror. I do think he will be signed. 
Final thought from the NBA. Mark Cuban makes this point about tanking, basically saying when the when the Mavericks, the team he owns, were out of the playoffs, he basically tanked. Now, his version of tanking is what really sort of uh, intrigued me here because we think of tanking as, I don't know what we think of it, as losing on purpose. That's not really it, and it's hard to do in any sport, especially football. What are you not going to tackle? What are you not going to uh, block? You know, I think what he, what he really defined as something that I don't think we can legislate as tanking, in other words, guard against, which is playing young players. Cubans said when they were out of it, they just started playing young players. And that, to me, is not tanking. Now, I can see how people would interpret that, even the owner of the team, as tanking. But here's the thing. I've said this all along. I said this about the league team dynamic happens every year at every level. Teams will do what they do on the personnel side. And if they want to play young players, if the Cleveland Browns want to pass on signing older players or pass on quarterbacks for the for the short term and build for the future, fine. No league is going to tell them they can't do that. If these teams in the Major League Baseball want to build through farm systems and not sign free agents and play all young players, if the 76ers want to keep building with young assets, it's going to continue. So I just think it's interesting that Mark Cuban labels tanking playing young players. Yeah, you're going to win less, but you're going to develop. And frankly, that's the strategy, that's the management, that's the philosophy of a lot of teams in all sports at all levels, major league, big time sports. So here's the thing you're always going to have with this idea of tanking, which is kind of a blanket term, are teams that have young players that are drafting and developing and building through the draft and building through farm systems and building through playing young players that hopefully will pay off down the road, are they tanking? I don't think so. Now, if you deliberately throw guys out there that aren't trying as hard as they can, of course that's tanking. But I don't think that's the case with Cuban. Listen, I'm a huge fan of Cuban. I think he's one of the smartest guys out there. I saw him at South by Southwest. I was enraptured with every word he said. Uh, and I just think his version of tanking is what a lot of teams do. And my final thought on Cuban is the reason I like him so much is I just think he's got a real intellectual curiosity about him, despite having made all this money, despite having enormous wealth. He's got that. And I'll leave you with this as we started with kind of instructional uh, podcast. This is my philosophical, philosophical instruction line at the end. I think the greatest indicator of success is intellectual curiosity. Cuban has it. I try to have it. I think for everyone listening, always be curious, always be intellectually interesting, interested and interesting and balanced in your life. So again, most predictive in my mind, factor of success, intellectual curiosity. This was another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Tune in anytime. Any, all these different outlets, RossTucker.com, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, wherever you hear podcasts, follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. 
Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.